Okay, we are back with part two of a coach's guide to optimizing movement. Before we actually get into this episode, I asked Pat to share with us the content that is covered in his Rethinking the Big Patterns 2.0 course. And I also asked Pat about his current track and field training program. Then Pat covers the first three of six foundational principles from his book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement. As always, guys, this was another great conversation with Pat, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Pat, as always, it is an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Uh, it's been a few weeks, June 30th, actually, since we last spoke, and it is now September 10th. So what's gone on over the last two and a bit months, two and a half months? Um, well, I mean, just, you know, from a professional standpoint, I, I have actually been doing some, some very good recent work in preparation for making the rethinking the big patterns certification model, uh, where I've, I've put the content together, um, for the three in-person seminars that I'll be teaching, which will be the, uh, the control patterns, the athletic patterns and resistance patterns. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the way that I feel like those, those, PowerPoint presentations kind of came together and, you know, they'll have to get formatted by a graphics person, have all the, uh, the images that, that I want put into them, but they're, I think they're, they're pretty close to being ready to go here. And as, as soon as that's the case, then I can start really looking to book some, some of these in-person seminars and uh and begin this process of of having people go down this road towards becoming certified coaches through this system in in person seminars god it's, it just feels like it's been so long since i mm-hmm. i actually can't I'd, I'd actually have to really think about what was the last seminar i was actually at in person but um yeah no it it, it in what it's funny because i think this is just you can give me your thoughts on this uh, like Personally, myself, I felt there was a bit of like seminar fatigue pre-COVID because like there was like a, a five to six year period, even maybe even 10 years. But like say like from like 2010 until probably COVID hit. And there was definitely like a period in there, like around like 2014 to like 17. There was like a seminar on every weekend. Like there was like a powerlifting seminar and a nutrition yeah. seminar. It was just like because this is just my own um, experience. And I like, just got you just got like burnt out. Like, listen, no more seminars. If it was like. There was just like powerlifting was one anyway. There seems like a powerlifting seminar on every like second weekend. And I was just, it got to a stage was like, if I go to another seminar that tells me the difference between a high bar and a low bar squat, I'm going to lose my mind. Mm. But, uh, but it's funny, like, I mean, it got to a stage and you probably, you probably have uh, witnessed this as well as, as we get older, like it's nearly, you, you, you more so, it, and obviously you're presenting at most of these seminars now, but it's from, from an attendee standpoint, it's almost, you're going there to meet up with mates nowadays, you know, to see the, yeah. to see the family members. So yeah. Think- it's, it's not going to learn. It's going to just be part of like the crew that goes to seminars. Like it's like checking off the, uh, the box of like, ah, I was a good little fitness person and I did what I was supposed to do. I continued my education and uh, I've got proof of it because these people that matter to me on that front saw me there and I posted my Instagram picture to prove that I was here. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird little like virtue signaling um, feather in the cap 
Yeah. Well, t- two points to that. One, uh, uh, one is like I don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily going to meet up with people that you otherwise wouldn't see for years yeah. on end if you didn't go to That's these a good sem- point. seminars or yep. conference. Like I, I just mean, like say for instance, like like if if there was a, if there was a conference on now and you and Connor Ryan and Derek Hansen and Jordan and Bill and you know like all you guys were going to be there mm-hmm. either added or presenting. I mean. Do you know what I mean? If if I wasn't going to that, who knows how long it could be again till I saw you guys, you know? So, but right. I do, I do completely agree with the virtue signaling because that's what was, that's what I was saying about the burnout of me going. Mm-hmm. It's just like, like people are just going, not falling asleep, having insulin crashes after lunch, just looking at their phone all the time, waiting to get home. And they're just yeah. basically, they're basically waiting for the end of the day to go up to the presenter, get a photograph, stick it on fucking social media and say, look, I was here and you weren't. Yeah. It's weird, but Hey, you know, so I like that's the kind of stuff that for me like oh I don't I don't ever I don't like going to continuing education that that feels like that you know and that was one of the things I loved so much about the intensive that Bill does is it's like well this is not stuff that you already know like you're you're gonna get blasted by things that you don't know that you're gonna have to struggle to try to like mentally work your way through and ask questions and it's it's not just like being there to check off that box and get your picture with bill like i don't even think he'd take a damn picture with you know what i mean like he'd be like what are you what are you trying to do right now like uh so it's um you know and and for me like you know i went to a lot of pri uh seminars and things like that too and i i I always felt very engaged because it was like challenging material but I know exactly what you're talking about with a lot of fitness seminars where it's like, we're seriously talking about this again. Like, haven't we, we've adequately covered this topic, you know, of like, like you mentioned high bar versus low bar uh, positions for back squatting. And, and there are a lot of those. And, you know, I, like for me, like, I just, I can't live with that. You know, like I, I hope that the things that I teach never really feel or become like that ever. Cause you know, I, when I, you know, when I'm presenting and I look out and I see an apathetic room or like indifferent faces, it drives me nuts. And like, I'm going to, I usually get fairly hostile with the audience at that point and um, start, you know, berating them or like uh, getting into topics where it's like, Oh, you know, this, huh? Like, well, how about I ask you some questions? Like, Oh, you don't know this. So why is everybody sitting there with, this look like you're, you're completely mastered in this topic. Like you're not. So don't act like it and don't expect to be here and to have all of this down. Like if you're here, you're going to get pushed. That's what I do. I push people. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the greatest approach from a sales perspective in terms of mass sales and, uh, you know, optimizing financial return, but I can't live with, um, with the kinds of experiences that we're familiar with, with in-person seminars where that kind of devolves into. Yeah. I felt, um, I'll be honest with you. I felt in the reckoning too. I kind of felt that's, that's how your presentation was going. Cause you were, you were like, you, you were really trying to challenge the audience in terms of like, you would ask a question, then you'd ask them again. And like, it was almost as if you were getting a, like you were getting a bit aggressive, like not, not in a bad way, but just if mm-hmm. like, you know, come on, like, I, I want more, like, you know, give me more back here, you know? So it's a, 
It's and, and listen, you're not the only one. I've seen many presenters like that. Reminds me a little bit about Charles Paul coming back in the day, but also to Franz Bosch. Like, I mean, it's kind of like, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's just a kind of a, you know, you're basically saying I will not stoop to your level. You're going to have to come up to my level because if we want mm-hmm. this, if we want this profession to, to go forward, we need to be having higher order conversations here. So that's yeah, that was kind of the, and I, I I'm glad that you know you completely resonated with the high bar low bar squatting because that was kind of the deep, <laughs> that was kind of the deeper message I was trying to get. At. I was like, oh, he's still, you know, like, and then it's just. Uh, do you know what? Do you, never, do you ever know when you're, when you're at some of those really superficial seminars and it's just like, it's almost as if like there's such apathy in the room that then someone mm-hmm. d- someone does ask a question that like is just so rudimentary, but it's just to nearly be polite to the presenter. You know, it's just like, and, uh, you know, if it was a, if, if it's a three-day week program, would, would you do uh, one linear day and then a multi-directional? And then would your next day be a max velocity or does it depend like, or <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, it's like you just throw on them a bone. Yeah. Throwing so, them the world's most boring bone. And you basically just answered the question. And it, it has, yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of way. Like, or, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I feel like you just literally brought to life, like, of, of 80 different variants oh i shouldn't use that word of exact moments that i've lived through at seminars i know i know but listen uh, just just for the listeners listen i've gone through all these phases too like like we, we were all newbies and novices at one stage and you know we all didn't know better at some stage but at the same time if you're not developing and growing at a at, a, at an appreciable rate in this profession you're still coming back with similar answers and questions and still acting out these behaviors of just doing fucking social media games of one-upmanship. It's kind of like, I don't really want to hang around with you anymore. Yeah. So, well, so yeah, that's, that's kind of from a professional standpoint, what I've been primarily focusing on and getting ready for. And, uh, but other, otherwise, yeah, things are, things are, are, you know, there's not that much that changes. So yeah. with, uh, with the current state of the world, Come here, one thing before we get it. So the topic for today, just to listen, so we're going to cover chapter two in Pat's book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement, the foundational principles. And there's six parts to this, um, or six models, as as Pat has laid out in this chapter, model one through six. And I'll, I'm, I'm not going to do the thing where I, I basically summarize the chapter and then Pat's there going, yeah, you just you just basically told <laughs> you just basically gave the answer so um but just come here before i get into that i've been very interested in your training this year because you've really been yeah. training more like a track athlete so would you just just for my own amusement and my own curiosity fill us in on, on obviously was Derek an influence on on why you started to do this yeah you know i remember last summer um with covid based things it was kind of like i i got pulled into trying to do Derek's uh, off-season running program, basically. Like, I think he called it, like, the summer sprint camp or summer sprint, something along those lines of summer sprint. Anyways, it was a 12-week program that he put together that, um, you know, it, it, it crushed me. Um, you know, I, I uh, by the – I didn't even fully make it through. I just, like, my, my shins couldn't tolerate it. It was brutal though. You know, it really, it felt like I was trying out for the track team or something. It was just very different kind of exercise than I had done in a long time. And I just was so pissed that I wasn't able to finish a program. And, you know, I kind of made up my mind, like I'm going to be able to handle that program next year. And, you know, it was kind of, I, I had to, 
figure out like, you know, it wasn't that hard. Like what are the main things that I should do to be able to handle that kind of a running program? And the biggest one was just lose weight. You know, like I, I started that program last year, like 220 pounds and way too fat. And it was just like, that's just too much weight for my frame to be able to try to run around on. Uh, so, you know, this year starting it, I, I think I weighed like 208 pounds, give or take at the start of this thing. And like, now I'm down to like, just, just a little bit under 200 pounds, like 198, 199 in that ballpark. And I also had to kind of play around with the programming a little bit because I went from zero days of running to five days of running right away immediately with that program. And it was kind of like, that's a, that's way too much of a volume shock wave to try to deal with in terms of, you know, anything reasonable. So, you know, I, I just made it part of the athletic weapon program that I offer at this point, which is like literally just my own. I love it because athletic weapon is my own program designed for me that I now sell to other people. Uh, and I think it like, at first I was like, this is, I don't know how I feel about this product. Like, it's kind of weird, but then I was like, you know what? It's actually probably best case scenario product, not just for me, but for other people, but it works in both directions. Number one, it makes me much more organized and diligent about the way that I actually like think about and write up my programming. Everything's written down. Uh, I have to be accountable to it. And then it's, it's sort of like, well, I'm not going to mess around with my own programming. I'm going to make it best case scenario. So whatever that is, is going to be probably much better for other people to follow than whatever the hell it was that they were following before. So, you know, I, in, from the perspective of like, I don't really have the option of missing training because like, that's bad for business for me. I had to make it a sustainable, reasonable program design that progressed into the full on running thing. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it's funny, it's, it's actually been a 20 week, it'll be a 20 week phase or 20 week block by the time it's done, which is a very long training block. And I broke it up into five phases. Uh, and in phase one, it started off with two running days a week and two lifting days a week. And then it progressed where by phase five, it's going to be five running days a week and one lifting day. So it's the volume has dramatically changed and shifted from the very beginning of week one, phase one to, you know, what week four, phase five looks like once I get there. Um, but it's been designed in a way that has allowed me to be able to handle the volume without any kind of like chronic pains or acute injuries, which is not easy to do when you're training with the primary focus on running full speed. Um, so the running days are 100% Derek design days. Like they're exactly the way he wrote it up before. Uh, it's just that the unfolding of introducing them is something that, that I kind of did based on just, just thinking about how I need to gradually increase the exposure and volume to uh, that level of running because 
I'll tell you, like, I, I was just so beaten down from it last year. It was crazy. So, so when you say two running days, does that include tempo? In the first phase, there was no tempo day. I believe it was just uh, two um, high-intensity days in the week. And then there were two – yeah, there were two – yeah, it was two high-intensity running days and two lifting days. Interesting, yeah, that's interesting. And then – and I progressed it by the the adding a third running day, and the third running day was a tempo day. I get you, I get you. And was that it then? So say say with that initial four day setup, were the three the other three days were you off completely? Yeah. Wow, nice. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, as it's progressed, it it went from uh, two running days and two lifting days to uh, eventually it became three running days and two lifting days. And right now I'm, I'm heading into today's the today's uh, it, I'm in phase four right now. Mm. And there's one more week next week of phase four, but this phase has uh, four, no. Uh, yeah. Four running days and one and two lifting days. Great stuff. Listen, that's another topic of discussion. We can get into later. So I'll be interested to hear your experience because it's, it's, you correct me here if I'm wrong, but that would be a very different training setup for you than what, what you've been doing over the last number of years. Because the last number of years, you've just primarily been on strength and hypertrophy, haven't you? Prior to last summer, yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, that's somewhat, but I, you know, I've always kind of, I've always tried to keep some level of uh, athleticism involved. Yeah. Uh, with, yeah. You know, but this was a shift towards running specifically. Mm. And, you know, the, the volume of that was dramatically more than I've ever done really in my life. And um, so it's, it's just a big difference when you go from doing like, you know, maybe a few tempo runs a week to five days of running a week, like yeah. you know, just like that out of the blue and no surprise, like I knew it was going to crush me. Um, and it got to the point where last summer, it was like, well, I, I have bilateral uh, stress fractures in both tibias, but I'm just going to keep running and seeing how far I can go. And I'm almost, I'm kind of curious if something really bad happens. Let's see if that can happen. Um, and it, it didn't, it was like my body actually just shut down. Um, like my legs no longer were able to like support me, like being upright and trying to propel myself forward. God, I mean, uh, I was actually just going to ask you, um, like, what were the big takeaways you, you took away? Because I did see a video of yours on Instagram, and it was basically you going, I prepared, I did tempos, I did everything, and I'm still fucked. And you were just like, you were just like, the, the take home message sprinting is unbelievably taxing to the human organism. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. But Just it, that number of foot contacts and the force is crazy. It, it makes you appreciate, though, how different you do need to program for heavier individuals versus lighter individuals. And why that comes to my mind is I can remember speaking with Al Vermeil, like, and Vermeil was saying that, like, he was kind of the first coach where he was like, he would individualize programs through the lens of, like, the person's, um, anthropometry you know so he was like because obviously he he dealt with american football initially he was with the 49ers when they won their first super bowl under bill walsh and then he went to the to chicago bulls later 
but he has a great great appreciation for the different the vast types of body types because you know in football alone sure you have your your lineman your, your lineman yeah and then obviously you have like your tight ends versus your receivers versus your cornerbacks mm-hmm. you know so you know all that much more than, than i would and then obviously with basketball so you've got these fucking high towers like and uh, but he was saying like showing me the different volumes and intensities he'd do for plyos and running and even tempo for the o-line guys versus the skill guys you know and like mm-hmm. while, while while that's there's probably coaches who are like saying that's not a big deal most school coaches don't know but this is like back in the early 80s when most people were dinosaurs like you know they, they were making like the the o-line like do all the same condition as like the skill guys you know yeah and, and he his whole thing was like the old guys were like literally as you said that their, their shins were crumbling they were like getting shin splints and fractures and he's like what do you expect when you're getting 275 to plus 300 plus guys doing the same volume as your fucking 190 198 receiver like you know yeah so. Yeah, the, the people, the, the lighter people that were doing that program with me last year, no problems. And it was like, if you were over 200 pounds, you started to have problems. And as you got progressively further over 200 pounds, it just became exponentially worse. Oh, so yeah. it's, it really is a major factor. But um, yeah, you know, it, it was kind of like, I realized like, man, I'm going to really have to lose weight if I'm going to be able to tolerate this thing. You can't and, be uh, physics. No, you can't. And, and, uh, you know, another super intelligent thing is, uh, fat don't fly. Like, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you know, if, because, you know, a lot of times I'm out there and I'm like running against other dudes and that gets very competitive and you don't want to lose. So like, I don't want to lose, like I'll do whatever I have to do to not lose to people. So if that means that that's actually going to motivate me to go on a diet, then that's what it, that, that's what it is. So I, you know, I've, I've managed to have really good body composition changes. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel pretty good. I feel like, you know, I've got a very, I, I really like the program design and I've been using the Renaissance periodization diet app. I found that to be the most useful tool I've ever come across for nutrition. Um, and I feel like I've gotten like, I'm like, man, I, I really wish I had this level of program design knowledge and nutrition intervention stuff when I was younger. I really like, I'm like, I'm going to turn 42 this year and I feel like I'm possibly in the best shape I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, your, your body, your body comp has improved tremendously just from seeing again, all the photos and videos you put up over the last year. Yeah. But, so uh, you know, that's what, but that's our job. Our job is not to be great athletes. Our job is to kind of suck and then figure out how to find the best tools to make ourselves like the best version of terrible athletes we can become so that in some way, shape or form, we could possibly give some of this to more gifted individuals um, so that they can reach their peaks. Yeah. Just off your fat don't fly. I mean, uh, I, I, I can't specifically say which research this is, but I do remember going to my master's and it was like one thing that had a huge correlation to increase like power and speed inconsistencies was the better your body composition got. Yeah. But it's uh, funny. People don't, don't put enough of a focus on body composition in my opinion. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But sure. For loads of things. I mean, not even just performance alone, but sure. Obviously for health. But when you said yeah. fat, don't, when you said fat, don't fly, the one thing that came into my mind was, I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of the Simpsons where the pig, gets shot into the air it gets shot into the air and like homer and bart are going after it and, uh, and homer keeps going it's just a little airborne it's still good it's still good and he's like <laughs> it's gone dad <laughs> 
But uh, listen, we'll get into this chapter two foundational yeah. principles. So your your theories and your models and really we we and this is my fault because I mean I'm the host and I should have directed the our original episode a bit better. But we should actually cover this as our very first sort of area. But we went straight into the foundational models where we talked about the seven pillars and then you really really got in depth and broke down the different parts of the seven pillars. But obviously, just for a whole. Um, like really good 30,000 foot view of the material mm. that's in this book, which obviously then accompanies your course, Rethinking the Big Patterns too. I think it's very important just to go over chapter two here. So if you yeah. just want to bring us through the, the six models, the floor is all yours. And then I have a few follow-up questions and then if anything else organically pops up, I'll ask. Yeah, and <clears throat> you know, you might have to remind me of some of them because I don't have notes in front of me in terms yeah. of, uh... <clears throat> but I feel like I've talked through these things so many times, I'll probably remember most of them. It's kind of like whenever I start the discussion on variability, I talk about it from like a really macroscopic perspective of it seems to be the strategy that life on Earth came up with to be able to survive uh, potentially catastrophic or apocalyptic events. If all the creatures on Earth were exactly alike and something really bad environmentally happened, then everything would die. But if things are different from each other, then something has a chance of surviving a major environmental shift. And this stuff has happened in our planet's history before. <clears throat> you know, the Cambrian explosion is a perfect example of it, where that was the time at which oxygen became highly present in our environment. And it killed 99% of life on Earth. There was literally, you know, people, people go crazy about global warming. It's got nothing on the Cambrian epoch. Uh, that was literally 99 plus percent of life on earth died. But all you need is one thing to kind of make it that's able to reproduce and the entire process can happen again. Um, so if life was too much like itself, it would be too rigid. On the other hand, uh, life does need common denominators. It needs to be a carbon backbone as its you know, primary structure. You can't have carbon backbones and, uh, and seven other different kinds of chemical backbones. That's too chaotic. There needs to be a tie that binds and there needs to be something that kind of at a very base level holds it all together. So, you know, when you think about variability, you usually think about it from the perspective of a bell curve where variability is actually in the middle and the tails would not represent variability. The tails would represent rigidity and chaos. <clears throat> so that's from like the most macroscopic level. And then when you get microscopic and you go into just simply like human centric discussion, there's all kinds of things that we have to be variable as humans. Like, you know, as a, as a, for instance, I oftentimes think of like, you know, the way that you demonstrate your personality. And you have to be able to shift your personality around. There has to be some sort of fluidity with it. Like you wouldn't want to act the same way with me as you would with your grandmother. And you wouldn't act the same way with me as you would with your boss. And you wouldn't act the same way with your boss as you would with your best friends when you're hanging out at the pub. And so you have to be able to shift around. So you don't want to be the same person all the time. Like, and there are some people you're like, this is all the, like, this person is never having fun. They're always just this way. Like they're, you know, um, and that's too rigid of a personality. But on the other hand, you also don't want to be schizophrenic. 
you don't want to be so chaotic and uh, wild that like you're, you're just beyond predictability. There needs to be some recurrence and predictability while still maintaining the ability to shift. And as, as it per specifically pertains to human movement, variability uh, is, is to me, like I said, kind of a two-part piece. Part one is, does the person possess appropriate joint range of motion on table tests? If they are completely devoid of being able to reach appropriate range of motion, then they're going to be a rigid individual. And if they are well beyond human norms for range of motion, then they're a chaotic individual from a movement standpoint. Um, and my interventions would be aimed at bringing someone towards normalcy in most instances. Now, once someone displays normal range of motion, and I'll quickly just say, I said in most instances, However, there's going to be very sport-specific examples where people probably need to fit, um, like it, it's, it's kind of like, there's probably normal for certain sports. <clears throat> like I wouldn't expect to see a group of male heavyweight powerlifters be able to display, um, you know, full shoulder flexion or like 45 degrees of hip internal rotation. You know, there's a lot of things that they'll probably lose. And it's kind of like, well, as long as they have 15 degrees of hip internal rotation, that's normal for this population. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm literally making this up. I don't have these norms in my head. I just know that I've worked with plenty of lifters. And when you're assessing them for like hip extension, as long as they're remotely close, uh, you're like, oh, okay, actually, you're doing pretty good for who you are. It's, it's just that your perspective shifts a little bit versus if I'm working with a general population client, they should probably have fairly close to human norms. They're a normal human. They should have normal values for their joint actions. And most of the time, most people are kind of there. You know, you'll see a little bit of differences, but sometimes you run into someone that is table test measure presentations my goal would be to move you towards normal table measures. And if I move you to normal, that would tell me, I would, I would define you as someone that has appropriate levels of joint movement variability at that point in time. Okay. And so I use table tests to be able to, uh, you know, identify someone as having human norms. And when people have, have or are very close to human norms, I would say that they are presenting with appropriate levels of movement because, you know, as a population, five-year-olds probably have outstanding table tests, but five-year-olds are terrible at everything. They don't know how to throw well. They don't know how to kick well. They don't know how to do anything well, but they have tremendous potential to learn how to do things well. But you still have to coach them and teach them how to do things well. And let's use an example that is not weight room specific. We'll use the example of shooting a basketball. I think it's a great example, actually. So if I have uh, uh, someone that's completely unexperienced with shooting a basketball, 
and they possess human norms for joint range of motion on a table, how would I start them with shooting a basketball? I really need to teach them the fundamentals from the easiest possible place, starting place to learn how to shoot a basketball properly as basketball shooting experts agree on proper mechanics for shooting a basketball. So do I want to start this person with a half court shot or do I want to start them with a layup? I want to start them with a layup. I dramatically increase the probability of success of this person reaching uh, the ability to display appropriate shooting fundamental mechanics if I start them with the layup, which is at their meeting them closer to their skill level as compared to a half court shot, which is well beyond their skill level. So we're going to practice and get a lot of repetitions at the layup as our first order of business for learning the appropriate mechanics for shooting a basketball as I've entered this person into motor learning 101 basketball shooting fundamentals. They're going to get rep after rep after rep. And once we've agreed that the way that the person shoots the ball looks right and feels right to them, now we can move them to a more challenging progression of shooting a basketball. <clears throat> and over time, we're going to just simply open the number of kinds of basketball shots that we expose this person to. And then, you know, like, but the thing is, I can't possibly teach this person every iteration of every kind of basketball shot that could ever exist. Uh, you know, sometimes you're dribbling to the left and you stop and shoot. Sometimes you're dribbling towards the basket and you shoot off of one foot. Sometimes you're running along the baseline and you catch and shoot from the corner for a three-pointer. Sometimes you're driving and you stop on a dime and you shoot a pull-up jumper. Sometimes you're going left, sometimes you're going right. Sometimes you're being guarded and you have to alter your shot and go off the backboard. Sometimes you have to shoot with your offhand. There's a million, that doesn't even do it justice. There is an infinite number of variations and alterations in the way that someone could potentially shoot a basketball. And there's no way that I could systematically teach someone every different way that a basketball could be shot. And the beautiful thing is I don't have to. If the person possesses the appropriate fundamentals for the essence of basketball shot, and they have this coded in their brain as a memory for how to unfold this skill. Now, when the person is actually just participating in the act of playing basketball and the time comes to shoot, they will simply automatically unfold the motor pattern for basketball shot and it will fluidly fit the context and circumstances of the of, how, of where they are in the, it's the same thing with cross country running. I don't have to teach you how to run up and down every different angle of a hill. So how does this specifically, you know, it's like I start off very macro and I come to the most micro, which is teaching someone fitness exercises like the squat. You know, I don't have to teach you how to do um, every different variation of a squat. 
what I need to do is I need to establish some sort of standards to say, this person has the motor potential to be able to actually full range of motion squat appropriately. And that comes from table tests. You know, if, if I say, if I look at your table tests and you have, uh, you know, 49 degrees of hip flexion, there's no way that you can squat. It's just not possible. It's not mechanically possible. So I, I don't expect it. You need to have, you know, so you, I would need to be able to lay you on your back and I would need to be able to bend your knee and flex your hip and see that you're able to go to 140 degrees of hip flexion to have any chance of being able to full range of motion squat. Otherwise, like, why would I expect you to be able to do that? It doesn't even make any damn sense. So I have to clear you for motor learning 101 with the squat. And then what I should do is if you've never squatted before, I should pick the layup version of the squat to teach you how to squat. And, you know, based upon the, uh, you know, the seven pillar system, there are rules that would tell you, you know, uh, from the principles of progression and from uh, the propulsion arc, how to arrive at the appropriate exercise selection for the layup version of the squat. Now it's, you know, to cut to the chase, it would be a heels elevated goblet squat as the layup version of the squat. And every coach that's ever had to coach a squat be like, yeah, if I pick that, that's probably going to be one that someone's going to look right and feel right in a squat with. Like that is a layup squat from a fitness perspective. And guess what? That's where I'm going to start everybody on day one. And guess what we're not going to do on day one? We're not going to like barbell low bar squat or high bar. Cause I don't, you know, the difference between those two is very important, but anyways, uh, that was a, a callback humor joke, but, I know, um, I know. um, we're going to get a whole bunch of reps with the layup. And then, you know, ultimately what should happen is that's what gets grooved into your brain. This is the squat. And now when I ask you to squat with other things, other implements, other positions, it should probably look a lot like that first squat that we started off, started you off with, because that is what your brain knows as the squat. That's always going to be the a priori. <clears throat> and that's, that's an outstanding way to start someone off and head them for success. <clears throat> So go ahead. Uh, you know, this is kind of the way in which we have model number one variability merge into model number two, the invariant representation of memory. Because the invariant representation of memory is saying exactly kind of what, what I've been alluding to here that, you know, from a macroscopic non-exercise perspective, uh, let's, let's see, let's think of like, I'm sure that Winston Churchill has some very famous speeches that he gave during his time as prime minister of England, all right? And you could probably look those speeches up and you could memorize them for some school project that you're working on. Would you have to memorize the speech anew to be able to recite it verbally and then re-memorize it completely to be able to type it out 
and then re-memorize it completely to be able to act it out in an interpretive dance. No, you only have to learn it one time. And then from a motor neuron uh, unfolding of the pattern, you already know how, if you can say it out loud, you can type it out loud. And if you can type it, you did I, I might've just said type it out loud, but you can't, like, I don't know, the keys make some noise. Anyways, if you can say it out loud, you can type it. And if you can type it, you can write it by hand. And it like, you can do it already. You already know it. The other example that I constantly give is signing your name. You know, if you take a pen and a piece of paper and you sign your name on that paper, okay, we've established that you know this motor program. Now take the pen away and take the paper away and sign your name into the air in front of you. I guarantee you can do it. Now put your hand in your pocket and sign your name in front of you with your nose. I guarantee that you actually were able to do it and that uh, you probably used the same strokes and rhythm and angle and timing and sequence to be able to sign your name in all of those instances in the same way, all right? So it's a very similar thing with all kinds of motor programs where if you, can, if you understand it one way, you actually can do it in other ways. Now, the interesting thing here is once you get exposed to a new variation, you could make the new variation better by practicing it. Everything can improve through practice. You know, if you've been goblet squatting and it's perfect, and then I say, okay, the next thing we're going to do is an overhead squat. The first time you do it, like you did it. And everybody's like, yeah, that's for sure an overhead squat. I know it. I see it. But it's probably not as good as it could be if you were to practice it. The same way that if I had you sign your name with some paint that I put on your nose on a piece of paper that was on a wall, we would recognize that it was your signature, but it probably wouldn't be optimal. And if you continue to practice it with your nose, it would get better and better and better and more refined over time. The same thing is true of all fitness expressions as well. The question that I always have is, well, do you need to do them all? No, you don't. What you need to do is you need to create the right sort of pathway for the individual so that you can arrive at terminal exercise selections for them that make the most sense for that individual. And when you begin to speak about terminal exercise selections that make the most sense for an individual, it brings us into the topic of external grounding versus internal grounding. And this is something that people would probably call stability, but I don't like that word. I, I like the word ground because I define ground as an object that does not move that you can push off of. Okay. So if I'm talking about knee dominant exercises and I've got a body, a terminal exercise for a bodybuilder would be one that features significant amounts of external ground. And that way I can maximize the recruitment of the prime mover tissues and really work towards a muscular development endpoint. <clears throat> if I'm working with a clay court specialist tennis player who is not going to be able to feature the utilization of external grounding in sports specific situations, I might want to elect for terminal exercises that feature significantly less external ground where they have to create their own internal grounding because they're playing in a sport 
where they need to create internal ground to be able to move off of to be able to drive a tennis racket through space to be able to hit the ball uh, as, as hard as they possibly can. Um, so every there's nuance in terms of terminal exercises for individuals. There's lack of nuance for uh, starting point exercise when it comes to individuals. When it comes to the knee dominant pattern, I start everyone the same. I start people with a goblet squat with the heels elevated, everyone, okay? When we get to terminal exercises for knee dominant, the clay court tennis player might end with a frontal plane split squat. The bodybuilder might end with a leg press. So it's very, very different terminals. It's always the same starting place. Um, but by providing the correct original representation of the fundamental motor task, I create the invariant representation of memory, which is the initial starting point, the a priori that every other thing is built off of in an appropriate manner. Uh, I believe that model three is asymmetry. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it is. It's asymmetry. Okay. It's been a while since I talked about these, so it's kind of nice to return to them. Asymmetry is rooted in movement to me. And whenever, like, you, you know, everything in the universe, it started from one thing and everything that emerged after that one thing is in some way, shape or form, a fractal representation of that one thing. And the origins of the universe symmetrical. And it had to be asymmetrical because if all of the matter and mass in the universe was scattered in equal size and an equal distance distribution from each other, then nothing would have been attracted to anything else from a perspective of gravity emerging as a force, you have to have one object be larger than another object, and you have to have objects asymmetrically arranged relative to each other, where something has to be closer to one thing than another thing in order to set the cascade of movement that's dominated by gravitational force into motion. And there's other representations of this as well. You know, another uh, classical kind of uh, thought paradox is uh, Buridan's ass, where there's a donkey that's in the top of a hill, and the hill is equally downslope to the left and to the right. And there's an equal amount of hay on one side and grass on the other side, or clovers on the other side. And the donkey never goes in either direction because both directions are equal, versus if the donkey was closer to one. Uh, and there was more of one of the clover or hay in one direction, the donkey would easily make the decision and go in one of those two directions. But, rather, but instead, the donkey never goes anywhere and starves. So it's all of these kinds of classical uh, science and thought paradox situations that arrive at this place of asymmetry is the director of movement. Nothing goes anywhere unless there's asymmetry. From a, from a physical representation at the most micro level of, of uh, biology, at the cellular level, um, you know, when you think about ions, everything has to move from a gradient perspective. 
If sodium is going to move, the only way that it moves is by a situation where a depolarized cell, or I'm, I'm sorry, like um, a cell at rest is going to have more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell. And there, like in order for a, a cell to become functional and to create action, you have to depolarize the cell. And that involves opening these gates for sodium at the membrane. And then because there is a gradient where there's more sodium and a high concentration outside the cell compared to inside the cell, the sodium rushes down its concentration gradient. And that is the director of movement. And the movement creates the kinetic energy that powers other cellular processes and allows the behavior of cells to commence. And all other cellular behaviors are ultimately driven through creating gradients of concentration. And the removal of the gradient drives potential energy into kinetic energy. And the kinetic energy is that which creates action. Uh, and action is that which animates. And animation is the act of moving. So without asymmetry, there is no movement. With asymmetry, the potential for movement exists. And once we enact a switch, the potential changes into kinetic and the kinetic is what we all love. And the kinetic energy is that which separates the inanimate from the animate and the inorganic from the organic. Um, so it's the, it's the basis of life. It's the essence of life. Movement is essentially everything. Um, and that's where, for me, it's funny, like, I, this is a topic where people are like, so you're pro-asymmetry? And I'm like, yes, I just want equal parts asymmetry on both sides of the body. I want you to become as asymmetrical as you can and then switch it and become as asymmetrical as you can the other way in the next second. And, you know, this is where I usually get into talking about like, well, let's talk about like throwing a ball, for instance, as a as a task that we can uh, examine and study the way that asymmetry really guides the ship here, where if I'm throwing a ball with my right hand, I first have to kind of wind up. I have to go into a cocking phase of throwing where my right arm is going to be flexed the hand will be supinated, the humerus will be externally rotated, and my arm is going to be abducted. Conversely, the off hand, the left hand, uh, it's going to be extended, the hand is going to be pronated, it's going to be internally rotated, and it's going to be adducted. Now, I'm going to go into the drive phase of throwing, and as soon as I switch from cocking phase to drive phase, I'm going to witness a switch and a mirror asymmetry process happening, where now the throwing hand is going to go from being supinated to pronating. And it's going to go from being externally rotated to internally rotating. It's going to go from being flexed to extending. And it's going to go from being abducted to adducted. And the exact opposite is going to happen with the offhand, where it's going to go from being pronated to supinated. It's going to go from being internally rotated to externally rotating. It's going to go from being extended to flexing. 
and it's going to go from adducted to abducting. And that's how we create that movement. The left side and the right side have to behave exactly opposite each other at exactly the right time, at exactly the same time. You know, they and they switch. They have to constantly switch back and forth. And, and it's very much this kind of like animated chiral process of total mirroring of the two sides. And when they do that, they behave as asymmetrically from each other as they possibly can. The degree to which they stay symmetrical and do the same thing is the degree to which you present low levels of fluidity and probably low levels of what we would deem to be beautiful athleticism. So rather than view asymmetry as this problem, asymmetry is actually the essence and the origin of all movement. And when it is really uh, like honed and crafted, it becomes the thing with which we move people forward from a capability standpoint. And usually when I'm trying to fix something on the right side that I don't like, I go to the left side. And when I'm trying to fix something on the left side that I don't like, I go to the right side. And there's always something that you can work with by understanding the mirror of asymmetry that actually guides movement at its most fundamental level on every level of biological presentation where movement occurs. So uh, that, you know, I think probably uh, handles a, you know, the only other thing with asymmetry that I think is worth noting is that I would say that there's probably um, as we go lower in levels from a macro to micro biological presentation, asymmetry probably increases uh, as we go. Like when I look at you from, you know, the outside of your body, it, things look fairly symmetrical. Two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, two hands, two feet, two elbows, two knees. And as I go one layer deeper and I get into looking at you from an organ and a viscera presentation, it's like, oh, actually, well, like your heart is over on this side, your liver is over on that side. Uh, there's quite a bit of, of organ asymmetry when I, when I look at you from this perspective. If I was to go down further at the level of the cell, uh, and then I went even further and I looked inside of a nucleus, I would see that at our smallest level, we are unbelievably asymmetrical, where the nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons, and they compromise, they, they comprise the entirety of the mass at that level. And the electron is essentially massless. And the electron, because there is such an asymmetry in mass between protons, neutrons, and electrons, it leads to actually the most high velocity movement and continuous movement that we see at any level of our biology, where the electrons orbit around the nucleus uh, at speeds that are like essentially equivalent to light. And that is really the, the smallest level that we can examine someone from and the greatest amount of asymmetry and the most uh, relative movement that takes place anywhere along your biological spectrum.
so, you know, as we kind of uh, go through this, that's the third model. And I might be jumping. I think that model five is Jacksonian dissolution, if I'm correct. And model six would be up and down the evolutionary ladder. So model four is Jacksonian disillusion. Model okay. f- model five is your unconscious incompetence, so okay. unconscious competence. And then the last one is up and down the evolution ladder. Mir, just one thing, Pat, before yeah. we move on from asymmetry. Um, within the asymmetry in the book, I just I really liked how you laid out the discussion between exhalation to inhalation um and compression to expanding and overcoming to yielding like how you wrap that in within the asymmetry model would that be something you could just touch on as well for the listeners yeah i'd be happy to um you know they are ultimately there there's these two strategies of movement that are you know kind of covered in like the seven pillar section that we talked about last time um and they are these opposite things from one another, the, the, uh, the exhale and the inhale, like from a, a joint action perspective, uh, compression is compression and expansion. Like in, inhalation and exhalation to me are just one component. They're the respiratory component of the overall movement strategy available to us. Uh, expansion happens at every level along the fractal. Like if you look at movement at the most macroscopic level of the universe, the universe is currently expanding, okay? If you look at, and and the universe, it will reach a point where it stops expanding and it will begin compressing again. Um, You know, from the perspective of other large things, there are in, you know, like stars emit and expand off energy black holes compress and crush things down to the smallest possible level. So all of these things are happening in some way, shape, or form at all points in times in different locations. Uh, It's never a situation where it's ever one absolutely dominating and the other not existing. There's always both happening at the same time on all levels. Okay. But if I were to go to a very microscopic analysis and talk about and, and look, like those are the only two real ways that things actually move. You're either compressing something or expanding something. Uh, you're either pushing something in a direction or accepting something in that direction. And from a joint movement perspective, we have expansion consisting of external rotation, flexion, abduction, supination, plantar flexion. We just, we fill something up with air. We inhale it. I turn the air all the way up on the used car lot inflatable guy out front that kind of dangles. I crank the air up to a hundred out of a hundred and it just, it makes the thing stand up perfectly straight. The arms stick out to the side and it's done. It's not going to move because it is 100% expanded. Okay. That's not asymmetrical at that point in time. It's all one thing. It's a hundred percent symmetrically expanded. That's bad for business when it, when we talk about moving. And if I were to turn the air completely off of the used car lot, wacky inflatable guy, 
I would, it would, it, the whole structure would internally rotate and it would fall to the ground. It would be completely compressed in all ways and it wouldn't move. It would be 100% compressed. Uh, you know, the, the joint actions of compression on a human body are going to be internal rotation, extension, adduction, dorsiflexion, and pronation. Those are the big five joint actions. From a respiratory perspective, expansion is inhalation. From a respiratory perspective, compression is exhalation. When you talk about good movers, they are able to demonstrate compression on one side and expansion on the other simultaneously. And this is at all levels. If I'm talking about one joint, the elbow, and I'm trying to go into uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm doing bicep curls and I want to get full range of motion at the top. My triceps better expand. You know what I mean? My biceps better compress. Otherwise, I won't be able to actively get my elbow to move through full range of motion. Uh, if I'm trying to throw a ball and I'm in the drive phase of throwing and actively trying to propel the ball towards the object I'm throwing it at with my right arm, I'm compressing the right side as I internally rotate the arm and I pronate the hand and I extend the elbow and I'm compressing that side of my body and I'm simultaneously expanding the other side of the body. Uh, and the reasons that I have to do that is every time I compress one side of my body, it's because I'm overcoming and leaving that side. And when I do that, I'm pushing myself to the other side of my body. If I compress my right side while I'm throwing a ball, I'm pushing my body into the left side. And the left side has to yield and accept the forces and the mass into that side. And that is the essence of what those joint actions are all about, flexion, external rotation, abduction, supination. They help me accept mass and force versus the other actions help me to push mass and force away from that current location. And they have to work together to be able to go back and forth from a, from a side to side action perspective. Um, so it's, it's usually about yielding to accept and that acceptance creates potential energy. And then when I want to shift potential energy into kinetic energy, I have to overcome and I use all of my compressive actions to be able to overcome from that side. But if I'm overcoming from that side, I of course have to yield and accept into the other side. That's great stuff. Come here first for whatever reason, just on a couple of occasions, you cut out just for a few seconds. So, okay. so no, everything's fine. It's just that for the listeners, just to summarize those first three models, I, I'm just going to say in my own words, and, and you just tell me if, if this is correct in our thinking. So with, with veritability, what we're, um, what we're really looking for there is we, we had rigid at one end, chaotic at the other, but what we really want is to be somewhere in the middle that once we have 
a foundation of a movement pattern, then we can slowly add variability to it. Is that correct for model one? Mm -hmm. And then with the invariant representation of memory and, and archetypes, that kind of was similar enough in that we want to have this sort of foundational biomechanical model of a certain motor pattern. And then off that, depending on where an individual is in terms of their um i suppose their their range of motion their movements potential and then their motor control that then leads us to the variant of that foundational biomechanical model that we will bring them to would that be correct that one was was kind of from an exercise purely exercise standpoint it's kind of like uh the the starting point exercise is the one where you learn the fundamentals yeah that become the invariant representation for that category of motor task yeah and then the end point ones are highly specific to the goals of the person that you're working with perfect yeah that that is my understanding if, if i didn't make it clear what that is that is how i thought about it or, or understood it as well and then finally asymmetry what the one thing i really the one line that really wrapped up the asymmetry for me was it's one of the last lines um you said the greater the degree to which we can mirror asymmetry and it's funny because the first time i read that I, I i was kind of thinking why did he write i can't even say that word mirror mirror i say i say mirror mirror asymmetry i was like why did he use that word now i understand it's you want to be able to go from one extreme and then be able to mirror it on the other end of the extreme um, and so the sentence is the greater degree to which we can mirror asymmetry and the greater degree we can be efficient in our motor or the greater degree we can be efficient in our motor performances. So I thought that really wrapped up the whole concept of asymmetry. You want to be able to go from one end of that asymmetrical spectrum to all the way to the other as the example you gave of throwing the baseball and then obviously the examples you gave with inhalation, exhalation, um, expression and um, expansion and compression and yielding and overcoming. Yeah. I sorry, um, just 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 one other thing too, Pat, on on variability too, because you actually cut out, and I thought this was a very important part just for the listeners. You you were talking about the two part model of that, and the first part is that you want to make sure that the individual actually has access to 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 the to the full range of movements of joint excursions in their joints, and that's where you use uh, a table assessments. So the first part is to to know if they actually can get into a certain range of motion, and if they pass that. Then it goes down to the actual motor learning of patterns. That's the that's the model, isn't it? Yes. And man, I cut out a lot. You have no idea. It was on a roll. Yeah. It just just cer certain there's certain parts. I just want to make sure that because again in the in the edit, I'll I'll, I'll take out the, the bit like the bits where there was no sound. It's just so that the listeners, yep. yeah, don't fully miss that. Come here. I am. Um, I have to. I've only got like eight minutes left, and it, again, it would do okay. disservice. It, it would do disservice. So, to, yeah, know. we can. This will be a part one, part two sort of a deal. Yeah. So we've got Jacksonian disillusion. We have the uh, um, unconscious incompetent to all the way to the unconscious competent model, and then up and down the evolution ladder where you discuss the energy system. So I thoroughly loved how you went through today, and I was perfect and it's exactly what i was hoping for so we'll pick up on the next one and we'll go through the, the last three models and then from there as i said to you before we hopped on i think because this book is so dense it really like it's gonna really have to be a podcast for every chapter or maybe two chapters you know because it's so dense i'd be happy to do that man we got nothing but time here all right so listen i'll wrap up there i'll say goodbye and um, to you offline but for all the listeners uh, hopefully if there was any sort of um 
issues like audio wise if, if something didn't come through clear it should be okay in the, in the post edit it, it was just a little thing pat like you just went and you went for 10 seconds but it was almost okay. all it was almost when you were just making a very crucial point oh of course but again so that's why i wanted to just make sure we filled in the gaps so people understood the kind of takeaways from those first three models but Absolutely. um listen um Listen, everyone that listens to, to us speak in this podcast knows who you are, where you are. I'll put all things in show notes, websites, Facebook, Instagram, so everyone knows where to contact Pat. Uh, is there anything, though, you just want to part with, Pat? Is there anything coming up soon in the next month or so before this gets put out that you want to let the listeners know? Yeah, you know, uh, Jordan Shallow and I are going to start a seminar series, um, and uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, we're going to do our first one in Miami. And it's going to be the uh, second weekend in Miami, either the first or second weekend in Miami. I can't remember exactly which one. I know that the post is on Instagram, but we're going to do Miami, New York, and Toronto. Uh, Miami is going to be in November, and New York is going to be later in January. And we haven't even talked about Toronto dates yet, but I think that's going to be a a really cool uh, seminar series that we do together on that front, you know, I'm always trying to work with some people that are, cause I feel like we, we run in similar circles, you know, like we, yeah. we kind of know the IFAS tree people, we know the, the boil tree people. And, um, and, and there's a lot of people in that world. And I love meeting people from other worlds within this exercise science, uh, you know, ecosystem. And uh, Jordan shallow is a, a really smart dude with some great information. So I'm really looking forward to, to doing that with him. Oh, that's great stuff. And uh, if there's info out about that already, I'll definitely stick that into the show notes. Well, this is all, as always, Robbie, a true pleasure being able to chat with you. All right. I'll just wrap up now. I'll say goodbye to offline. So for everyone, make sure you keep your ears and eyes tuned for part two of this, but until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Thank you.